I started a series last week on um, rethinking eternity and looking at the fact and fiction behind what we believe about heaven, about hell, and about eternity, about our hope that we have for eternal life. And uh, just to recap really quick is last week, I made kind of maybe for some of you a shocking statement. And I said that the ultimate goal of Christianity and Christian faith is not necessarily to go to heaven when you die. Uh, If by that we mean heaven is some otherworldly place where we just sit on a cloud and play a harp for all eternity. Because that's not really what the Bible teaches about eternal life. Instead, the goal for us as believers is for heaven and earth to be renewed and restored in what the scriptures call new creation. Y'all remember that if you were here? If you weren't here, go back and watch that or listen to that on the app or on the website because it'll help you understand where we're coming from when we look at this because we want to look at to the Bible and not just to what we've heard about eternal life, but what does the scriptures say? And so I told you about the two great promises of eternity that we have as believers. The first one was restoration. We got that from Acts chapter 3 when Peter is preaching and he says, Repent and turn to the Lord Jesus and times of refreshment will come upon you um, until the day when he returns and there is this restoration of all things. That God has promised that he's going to restore heaven and earth to the way it was before sin ever corrupted heaven and earth. Right? And so that's the, one of the great promises. And, it, and that's a personal promise for you. God's going to restore everything in your life. Everything that sin stole from you. Everything that death cheated out of you. Everything that, that this corrupt world has, has taken out of your life. God's going to restore it all. Amen? That's something to be excited about. And then I said that the second great promise is it's not just restoration, but resurrection. That this body is going to be resurrected into a new and glorified body. That, that Jesus was the first resurrection, but he wasn't the only resurrection. That you and I as believers, and we get that from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul says, and it's other places in the Bible too, he says, we won't all die, but we will all be raised. And we'll be raised to an incorruptible, immortal body. And that we have that to look forward to in in eternity that's those are the two great promises for eternity now i told you last week that uh, i wanted you to help me preach this this series and i said if you have questions because all of us do about death, about the afterlife, about heaven, about hell, about all these different things, and send me a question. Let's talk about it, and I'm not going to answer with what I I want to believe, but I'm going to do the research, and I'm going to take some time to point you to the scripture. And so I got a lot of great questions over the past couple, over the past week, and um, I'm excited to share some of them with you. So we're going to kind of have class today. Are you all ready? All right. Here's the first question that I got this week. What will the restoration look like when it says we'll rule over angels? And why would anyone rule but God? Because I think I mentioned that in my message last week that the scripture says that in eternity, in the restoration and in the resurrection, we'll rule over angels. But I don't think I quoted the verse. How many of you have ever heard that but kind of wondered, what's that all about? Well, okay, thank you for being honest. One person was honest. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. What's that mean? What, what is it talking about? And we get this from the scripture, 1 Corinthians 
chapter 6. I want you to look at that. It's going to be on the screen as well. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. And he says, don't you realize that someday we believers will judge the world? And since you are going to judge the world, can't you decide even these little things among yourselves? Don't you realize that we will judge angels? So you should surely be able to resolve ordinary disputes in this life. Here's the context. Paul is writing to the church at the town of Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece, and they are a very spiritual church. They have the gifts of the Spirit flowing. They've got lots of great things happening, miracles happening in their services, but they're having trouble getting along. And what's happening is, is these new believers, they're getting into these arguments with other new believers, and they're having disputes over business, over finances, different things, and they're taking each other to court in the pagan courts. And so they're going to, because they're living in ancient Greece, they're living in the ancient world where, where the government is worshiping these, is all about worshiping these false idol gods, the, the, the Roman and the Greek pantheon of gods. And so the entire system of government around them is not Christian. There, there isn't even a semblance of it in, in the world around them. And so, but these Christians who are claiming that Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords, that Jesus is king and Caesar is not, that Jesus is the answer to the world's problems, they're taking their arguments to the pagan court that doesn't believe in Jesus and in fact is in fact persecuting believers in Jesus. And so Paul is saying, that's dumb. Why are you going to the world for wisdom to solve your problems when you are a follower of Jesus and you have the answer and you're trying to convince the world that you have the answer? And he says, don't you realize that you've got more authority than that court in that pagan governmental system? Don't you realize we're supposed to have more wisdom than those judges in that pagan court system? And so he says, don't go to them to solve your problems. You're supposed to be loving, unified, spirit-filled, blood-bought believers. Figure it out. <laughs> and he's saying, don't you realize you're called to higher authority? Don't you realize you're called for something greater than this world system around you? And that's when he says, don't you realize you're going to judge angels? So you should surely be able to resolve these petty little conflicts among yourselves. Now, this is the only place in Scripture it talks like this. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says this in verse 12. He says, if we endure, in other words, if we stay in the faith to the end, it says, we will also reign with Jesus, will rule with Jesus. Revelation 20, John, the revelator, he sees these faithful Christians who've overcome Satan and they're staying faithful to Jesus. And there he says, I saw them sitting on thrones and being given authority to judge. So when Jesus returns... The Bible teaches us that his disciples, his people, his believers will rule and reign with him over new creation. Now, that's kind of foreign to us because we, we've heard, you know, well, we're just these dirty, rotten, filthy sinners who just make it into heaven by the skin of our teeth. And he's king of kings and lord of lords. And so, you know, what, what does that mean that we're going to rule with him because isn't he the king, right? Right. 
But I think to understand that, we have to go back to the original creation. We have to go back to how and why did God create human beings in the first place? Because remember, when we're talking about the restoration, God's going to set everything back to the way it should have been before sin ever entered the world. And why and how did he create Adam? Look at Genesis chapter 1, very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. Then God blessed them, and watch this, he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. God created us to rule and reign on this world and in this earth. That was our original purpose, to be uh, in partnership with God in this ruling and reigning over creation. So when we talk about you're going to rule over angels, you're going to rule and reign with Christ in this new creation, what we're talking about is exactly what Adam and Eve did in the original creation. They governed, they maintained, they were, they were uh, in charge of, they managed, and it was a partnership between God and man. Your King James Version maybe would say uh, in that scripture in, verse, in Genesis 1, 28, it would say, uh, take dominion over the earth. That means that you are the manager, you're the steward of it. You're supposed to be in charge of things there. That is why it was so bad that Adam and Eve listened to a snake and let the snake tell them what to do and then instead of them telling the snake what to do. Because they were supposed to govern and rule and reign over all the creation that God had given them and instead they let creation rule over them. So this is a partnership with God that we're talking about. We're, we're supposed to work for God, work with God to take care of God's good creation. That's, Adam was a gardener. That was his job, was to tend to the garden, tend to creation that God had given him. And so we're called to that same calling. So this should elevate some of you. You should be like, man, I'm... devil, you can't push me around. I'm supposed to rule and reign over you. Sin, you can't tell me what to do because I... Paul said, don't you know you rule over angels? And so that demon can't tell me what to do. And that demon can't influence me. And that addiction can't run my life because I'm supposed to rule and reign over everything in this creation. So that changes your perspective a little bit. Now I don't settle for sin because I'm called to something higher. I've got more authority than I thought of I did. So throughout this sermon day, I'm going to give you some takeaways, some things that I want you to kind of keep in mind. First one is this. God created people to live eternally. You were created to live eternally. That's why death is so hard for us to deal with, because it's not natural. It's not who you were created to be. You were created to live forever in partnership with your God, with your creator. And so the second takeaway, takeaway is this. God created people to work in partnership with him and to tend to his good creation. So that, yes, we serve him and yes, he's king and yes, we worship him and we bow down to him, but we also work with him and we're partners with him in making sure that his kingdom expands in this creation and we're gonna work with him for all of eternity to tend and care for this new creation that God is gonna do in our lives and in this world, amen? So I got another good question. This one was, 
When God restores all, what does that look like? Is there a particular time or a season that this will occur? Or will it happen when we all live in eternity? And the, the way I want to answer this is, uh, is kind of threefold. Um, because when we looked at that scripture in Acts chapter 3 where, Paul, where Peter says, Repent, turn toward Jesus. Times of refreshment will come upon you until the time when Jesus returns and, and completes the restoration of all things. That's Acts chapter 3. And so when we're talking about the great restoration, we're kind of living in this, it's already begun, but it's not yet complete. So when you say, what does the restoration look like and when will it happen? My first response is, the restoration's already begun. It began with Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection. All of history changed in that moment. Everything changed when Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross and then when he busted the grave wide open on the Sunday after. See, Jesus is the firstborn, the Bible says, of this new creation. His resurrection is the defining moment of new creation. And the Bible emphasizes that Jesus was resurrected on the first day of the week. Why? Because the first day of the week is the day God began to create. And so when he's born on the first day of the week, on, or when he's resurrected on the first day of the week on Easter Sunday, that's the Bible telling us God's creating something new. He's doing something new on the first day of the week. So it's already begun, and it's happening right now. The restoration the Bible talks about uh, in our walk with Christ, that as New Testament believers, that when we become saved, when we become followers of Jesus, God makes us into a new creation. That if you are in Christ, if you've been born again, you are a new creation. The old man has died and new resurrection life has come inside of your life. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation, the scriptures say. And in Revelation chapter 21, Jesus said, Behold, I am making all things new. So we're in the process right now of God restoring. We're living in that day right now where the role of the church, us as believers, is to go out into the world and bring the world into subjection of his new kingdom. That's what evangelism is. That's what telling people about Jesus is. It's saying, hey, there's a new kingdom and you can be a citizen of that new kingdom. You can be a part of what God's going to do, is doing, and is going to do in this great restoration where he's going to conquer sin for all eternity, where he's going to uh, defeat death for all eternity. That's what this whole thing is about. So the restoration's happening, but then also it's not yet complete. That's why Peter said, repent. Times of refreshing will come upon you because God's already doing a new thing until the time where he restores all things because the restoration is going to be fully completed when Jesus returns. He's coming back, y'all. Yes. When you have a rough day, when things don't be, seem, seem to be going so well, when death knocks at your door, when sickness and suffering comes, you can say all of this is just temporary yes. because he's coming back. And 2 Peter chapter 3 says this, we are looking forward to a new heavens and new earth that he has promised, filled with God's righteousness, not filled with sin, not filled with death, not filled with sickness, not filled with suffering, 
but filled with God's justice, filled with God's righteousness. So it's already begun. We're part of what he's doing right now. He's restoring our lives. He's building us into the person he created us to be. We're supposed to go and take the kingdom to the world around us so that other people can join into this restoration process. But we got a day coming where it's all going to be taken care of, where it's all going to be completed and it's all going to be made new. So here's your takeaway. Jesus began the great restoration through his resurrection. That restoration is continuing in me right now, if you're a believer. And that restoration will be completed in me and in the earth around me when he comes again. That's something to look forward to. Amen? Those are some great questions. Everybody comfortable? We good? All right. This is my message today, the hope of heaven. And I've got a couple more questions I'm going to answer at the end. The hope of heaven. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Jesus says, or the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible from the very first sentence assumes that there is this place called earth and there is a place called heaven. And and there is a connection between the two, but they are also different. So when we're talking about heaven, we want to keep in mind God created heaven and earth. The Bible assumes that there is this place called heaven. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 10. This is the Lord's prayer when the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who, in, our Father in where? Heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus talks about heaven. Now, there's a problem, though, when we read in the Bible the word heaven, especially if we're English-speaking people and we read an English-language translation of the Bible, because the Bible uses the word heaven in three different ways, and you have to read carefully to know what the Bible's talking about when I read the word heaven, because it might not be talking about what I think it's talking about based on the context around it. So stick with me for just a minute. I know this is maybe, you know, we've got to think a little bit here. You, you know, you don't have to leave your brain at the door when you come to church. I, mean, I know some people think you do, but you don't. So look at this. The first way that the Bible uses the word heaven is just simply talking about the created atmosphere and space. The, the clouds, the moon, the sun, the stars. And it, it calls that the heavens. So, for example, um, the, the Psalms say, the heavens declare the glory of God. It's talking about the beauty of creation around us. You look up at the stars in the sky, they didn't get there by accident. They declare the glory of God. So sometimes when the Bible uses the word heaven, it's just talking about material space. It's talking about the things we see in the sky. Okay? Another way that the Bible uses the word heaven, though, is a substitute for the word God, especially if you read in the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, his name's also Levi, he was a, a Jewish man, 
And he wrote his gospel to try to convince other Jewish people that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah that had been promised in the Jewish scriptures. And so it's a very Jewish book when you read it. And one thing about ancient Jewish people and some Jewish people today is they were very careful about not wanting to break that commandment that said, don't take the Lord's name in vain. And so they were really careful about it. In fact, today you will see some people that are, that are Orthodox Jews and they will, if they're writing the word G-O-D, they will leave the O out and put a dash there. Because they, and they'll say G-D. And the reason they do that is they, they want to be so careful that they don't accidentally take the Lord's name in vain that they don't even write it down. And so when Matthew is writing in, in, in the book of Matthew and he's writing to Jewish people and he wants them to understand him and, and he wants to meet them where they're at in their view, a lot of times instead of saying the word God, they would say the word heaven. So if you're reading, you know how when you read in the Gospels, um, it'll almost be word for word in Matthew what it says word for word in Luke. But Luke will say the kingdom of God. But Matthew will say the kingdom of heaven. Is he talking about something different? No. He's just using the word that's respectful in his culture for talking about God. So you got to be careful about that. Because, you know, in Matthew, Jesus says, it's impossible for a rich man to enter heaven, the kingdom of heaven. So is he talking about when he dies, it's impossible for a rich man to go to a place called heaven Not really. What he's actually talking about is it's really hard for someone who's rich to give up everything and follow Jesus and be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven that's here right now. So we have to be careful when we read the scriptures that we're not taught when we're talking about heaven, we might not be talking about a place up in the sky somewhere where you go and you die, especially in Matthew's gospel. It's talking about right now, you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Is that, I'm trying really hard to communicate this right. Give me feedback. Are we clear? Sometimes we're not talking about heaven when we die, when we read in the scriptures, we're talking about the kingdom. Is that cool? Okay. The third way that the Bible talks about and uses the word heaven is this. It's that unseen part of creation where God is. This is what we're normally talking about when we say heaven. Um, One way I read this week in a commentary, it talked about heaven is kind of like, think about like the control room for everything that happens on earth. It's the place where God governs from. But the Bible does not talk about this place called heaven, where God is, as if it's far away Go to Saturn and take a left in outer space somewhere, and that's where heaven is. It's much closer when you read in the scripture about where God is and where heaven is. Genesis chapter 1, when it's talking about the heavens and the earth, and it's talking about God governing and ruling and God creating, it, it makes heaven sound like heaven almost overlaps and uh, coexists and interlocks with the world that God is creating. There's a connection between what we see in the natural world that we call earth and where God is in heaven. It's not far off and it's not removed. 
because God is there. When you read about Adam and Eve and you read about their life before they fell into sin, um, God's kind of coming and going between heaven and earth. He's there and then he's not there and he's walking with them in the cool of the day and he's taking Adam around to see all of creation. Then he's not there at certain point. There, but he comes and goes. There's this free uh, uh, transport kind of between heaven and earth. So it's not, it, it's not hundreds of light years away and it's not another place. It's, it's nearby. It's close but we can't necessarily see it with our natural eye. So God, he's spending in creation, he's spending time with Adam and Eve. He's walking in the garden, he's there. And I think the point of the Bible when it talks about heaven is this, the Bible doesn't understand heaven to be somewhere else. It's just a different existence. It's just a, it's, it's just a different sphere, but it's nearby. It's a... It's close. It's accessible. It's, it's, it's just a breath away. That's why when we talk about prayer, when we talk about God, he, he, you don't have to shout for him to hear you. You don't, you don't have to hope that, you know, your prayers make it past us. No, he's, he's here with us. It, it, it's not that far away. So when we get to Jesus and to the New Testament, never once does Jesus say, Believe in me so that you can leave this earth and go somewhere else to a place called heaven when you die. Jesus doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that. Instead, this is what Jesus talks about when he talks about heaven. He says this, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. He, Jesus doesn't teach us following me means you get to escape this world and go somewhere else. Following me means you get to be a part of heaven coming here to earth. So the hope of heaven, y'all, I know this is maybe really challenging. The hope of heaven isn't that we leave here. The hope of heaven is that heaven comes here. That is what the Bible teaches. Because God is our creator, and because he created this world, and he did not abandon it to, be, to exist on its own, even when the world rejected him, a biblical theology of heaven is not that heaven is a faraway place, but that heaven has come near to us, that it's not inaccessible, but that heaven is available. Now it's clear there's still a separation between heaven and earth. Even though it's near, we haven't quite experienced all that heaven has for us yet. After Jesus was resurrected in Acts chapter 1, the Bible says that Jesus ascended into heaven. It says that the clouds received him, but I, when you read it, it's not like he's on a rocket ship going to another planet. It's just that he's kind of stepping out of this sphere for a moment, but he's going to send his Holy Spirit so he's close by. God's still going to be active. His spirit is still moving. Jesus has entered into the control room. He's gone to be with the Father. He's still sit, sitting on the throne right now in heaven, but it's not some far off place. It's nearby. And our hope of heaven is that while we wait for the restoration and the resurrection that's coming, Jesus is still sitting on the throne. And Jesus is interceding and overseeing the advancement of his kingdom in the earth today. He's, he's praying for us right now with the Father. He's interceding on your behalf. He's watching you. He's looking out for you. He's there in heaven, but it's not some far off place. It's close enough where we can hear from him 
and he can hear from us. So here's your takeaways for this. Heaven is not far away. Heaven is near because God is active and involved in our lives, even when we don't see, feel, or acknowledge it. The hope of heaven is that heaven and earth will join together in the sovereign rule of God's kingdom here on earth. Now this leads us to more questions, doesn't it? Because, and I got three other questions and it just worked out perfectly because it's going to fit in with how I want to close this message today. Final questions that surrounded the, 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 the thing that we all wonder. What about those who have died and are waiting for the resurrection and the restoration? What, what about that? Because we talk about heaven and when believers die, they go to heaven, right? Pastor Seth, yes, absolutely. Let's look at these questions. I got this one. It said, I've read and heard that to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. Is this just for believers only? Where do unbelievers go? Is hell the same as the lake of fire? Or are these two different places? And then another question I got was this. Do we see the face of Jesus as soon as we die? Or do we sleep until the resurrection? Now, now next week, I'm going to I'm, or two weeks from now, I'm going to spend some considerable time talking about the question of, of unbelievers and hell and, and that kind of thing. So I'm not going to get into that today. That's just your teaser. If, you, if you're curious or you're wondering where you might end up, then come back <laughs> and don't die before then. <laughs> or get saved today and you just won't have to worry about it. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach on that and it. it there is a biblical reality to a place called hell, and it's a, it's a tragic place. And I'm going to teach on that in a few weeks, but um, today I want to focus, my message is the hope of heaven, so we're going to focus on the heaven part of the question for just a minute. Um, what does a believer have to look forward to after this body dies, but while we're waiting for Christ's return in the resurrection? So that first question says, I've heard and read, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But what does that mean? And that's absolutely correct. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is writing about it, and he's talking about being a faithful follower of Jesus, and this is what he says. He says, we are confident that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And the context, actually, that he's talking about is he's living under persecution, and he realizes that any moment someone might kill me, for me preaching the gospel. And he says, you know what? I'm okay with that because I'm going to do what God called me to do. And if they kill me, I'm not really going to be dead. I'm going to go and be present in the presence of Jesus. See, the scriptures are clear that when this body dies, my, the life that's in this body, my spirit, my soul, my, my mind, whatever you want to call that part of me that makes me me, immediately goes into the presence of God. When you, as a believer, die, you immediately go to be with Jesus. That is abundantly clear in the Scripture. And the Bible is clear that we are conscious and that we are aware. There are some people that teach you to sleep until you wait for the resurrection. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that you're, you're alive. You're, you're, you're there. You're, you know that you're there in the presence of the Lord. For example, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a parable about a rich man and a man named Lazarus. 
Lazarus is a poor, sick man who dies, and the rich man is a greedy, rich man who dies. And Jesus says about the rich man, who was consumed with materialism and greed and wasn't generous to, to the poor, that he goes to a place called Hades, we would often in our English language call that hell, or to a place separate from God. And we're going to talk more about that in the next few weeks. But Lazarus, he says, when his body dies, it says, and it says this specifically, angels carried Lazarus to what the Bible calls Abraham's side. Or uh, your King James Version might say Abraham's bosom. Um, Now, I know that's a weird word to talk about in church, but it just means close to where Abraham is. Remember who Abraham is in the scripture. He's the father of faith. He is, he's that righteous example of what it means to follow God faithfully. And so Jesus says he goes to Abraham's side, and it's a very Jewish way, a very Hebrew way of describing the place where the faithful, righteous people go when they die to be with the Lord. So when we're talking about heaven, you're going to that place where God is. Where is God? He's in the control room. He's in heaven. He's in that, and you go to be with him in that moment. And in the context of that story, if you go back and read in Luke chapter 16, Lazarus recognized other people. He knew who they were, and Lazarus was able to communicate. Lazarus was was there. He was conscious. He was alive, and he was at perfect peace, and he was at perfect rest. So heaven's a good place to go in the meantime while we wait. But probably the greatest example in Scripture that we all think of, that biblical truth when believers die, we immediately and consciously go to be with the Lord, is the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross in Luke chapter 23, he says this, the one thief has mocked Jesus, remember the story? The other thief says, hey, this guy's a righteous guy, he's never done anything wrong, we deserve to be on this cross, and he doesn't, and he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, and Jesus replies back to him and says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, today. Not a thousand years from now when Jesus returns. Not, you know, not, you know, kind of sleeping somewhere. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. And paradise is another really old, really religious, very Hebrew word. And, and when the Old Testament talks about paradise, it, it only shows up a few times in the Bible. But in the Old Testament, it uses the word paradise. And it's speaking of a refreshing park or a garden. And it's supposed to make you think of the Garden of Eden. It's supposed to make you think of the place where Adam and Eve lived in perfect peace and in perfection. It's a place of peace and rest. It's a place of refreshing, but it's a temporary place. It's a, it's a way station where we go to be in the presence of Jesus while we wait for the resurrection and the restoration that's coming. Ancient Jewish people, they saw paradise as a place like the Garden of Eden, a perfect place where we can live and dwell in God's presence. That's what we mostly talk about when we talk about our loved ones who go to heaven. We're talking about that place. But here's what you need to know and what the Bible teaches us is that's not eternity. That's just a temporary place while you wait for this body to be resurrected, while we wait for new creation while we wait for everything and anything to be restored. And so, you know, there's that song, you know, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. 
really a, a more theologically correct way to sing that song was, heaven's not my home, I'm just passing through. This world is my home. And God's going to restore it, and God's going to renew it, and he's going to set everything right. And when I die, if, before the, if that's before the Lord comes, then I'm going to go to a place that, that the Bible calls heaven, the Bible calls paradise, and it's where Jesus is, and I'm going to be with the Lord, and I'm going to be there, and it's going to be perfect, and I'm going to know people, and I'm going to know Jesus, and it's going to be great, but it's not the end because I'm looking forward to the day when I'm coming back with Jesus, and me and him together, because we rule and reign together, we're going to set everything right on this world, and I'm going to get everything back the devil ever stole from me. I'm going to get life back. I'm, the suffering that I've experienced, the death that I've experienced, sickness that that your loved ones have experienced, you get to, with Jesus, see it all restored and brought back. Isn't that better than staying on a harp for all eternity and just singing cute music? The Bible's so much better than that, isn't it? In the meantime, their spirits, their souls, you can use different language to describe it. They're alive and they are well. And they are in the presence of Jesus. That is paradise. That is heaven, to be with Jesus. It's not far off. It's not on some other side of the galaxy. It's nearby. It's close. And that heaven right now is breaking through into the world, through the church, through God's spirit, through the hands and feet of Jesus, us taking the kingdom to the world around us. Isn't that good news? That we have something to look forward to. Yes, the, the last breath you take, the Bible says immediately angels take you to be in the presence of the Lord. But that's not it. There's something even better because he's going to resurrect this body. He's going to set everything right. Takeaways. At death, born-again believers are immediately ushered by angels into the presence of God in heaven or paradise. The dead in Christ are at perfect peace in the presence of Jesus. I want, you to, I want somebody to hear that today, that you've wondered about a loved one, and you've wondered about maybe a child. Are they okay? I want to tell you the Bible says they're at perfect peace. They're at perfect peace. And they're excited about the day when he's going to restore it all. Another takeaway, they are anticipating the coming restoration and resurrection. They have eternity to look forward to also. And it will be a reunion. It will be, we will be reunited with loved ones. The Bible says, when the trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ shall rise and we who remain will be caught up and we will meet them in the air. And that's going to be a glorious day when we get to see Jesus face to face together, we have eternity to look forward to. I got one final question and then I'm going to close. I love this question. Someone asked, do you think there is a peace within you when you're dying if you're a Christian? Now, my first answer, I wanted to sound real spiritual. And I want to say, yeah, if you're in Christ, you know, death's no big deal. <laughs> you know, perfect peace. It's just easy. But as I kind of prayed and thought more on that question, I thought, you know, sometimes death isn't an easy experience. 
the reality is, is that death is hard. Um, it can be scary. It can be painful. And the reason that we as human beings have such trouble talking about death, like this is unusual even for a pre, you know, you don't talk to Sunday morning about dying, you know, like find an encouraging message, pastor, good grief. But I want you to hear this. You know, we, we have a hard time talking about death or dealing with death because it's not in our DNA. Yeah. We were created for eternity. Right. Death isn't natural to us. That's why it's so difficult. Death is a horrible byproduct of sin and corruption in the world. And as God's children, children of life, children of light, we want to overcome death and we want to live forever the way God created us to live. Now, some people, and I hope this is me one day, some people are fortunate enough to just lay down and fall asleep and they close their eyes and when they open them up, they're in the presence of Jesus. And it is peaceful and it is great. And it's even peaceful for the family around you to know, oh, they didn't suffer, they didn't hurt, and they're with Jesus right now. That's a comfort to us. But for others, the reality is, is that sometimes death is painful. Sometimes it's traumatic. Sometimes it's unexpected, accidental, tragic. So while I'm, what, I, what I'm about to say is yes, we can have peace as we face death. I just didn't want to gloss over the fact that it still hurts. Then it's still hard. It's not necessarily an easy process all the time. There are still real fears. There are still real questions. And there's still emotional pain that goes along with it. And maybe that sounds not very spiritual and... You know, maybe that's just, but you'll have to argue with Jesus. Because Jesus, on the night before he was crucified, he experienced that real pain. And he experienced that real anguish. And even in a moment, almost hesitation, as he said, Father, if, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Because the reality is, it's hard. And some of you, even in the past few weeks or few months, you've experienced and you've, you've walked through death with a loved one. You've, you've sat by a bedside. Something tragic has happened. And I just, I, the reason I'm camping out here is I want you to know, if that's been you, you're in good company because Jesus has been there. Jesus, when his, son, when his best friend, one of his best friends, Lazarus, died, Jesus knew I'm getting ready to resurrect this dude. But he still, the Bible says, in John chapter 11, verse 35, he stood at the tomb and Jesus wept. Because Jesus saw and experienced the pain that death causes. So, yes, it's hard. Yes, it's difficult. But in the midst of the pain and the suffering that death is often associated with, if you're in Christ, you can still have peace because we know that death is not final. We know that the grave is not the end of the story. We know that there is life on the other side. We see this in the scripture, Jesus, as he's hanging on the cross, 
He's in intense pain. He's already been beaten to within an inch of his life. He's been impaled with nails in his hands and his feet. He's been mocked. He's been beaten. He's been abused. And he's able to whisper out in that moment of submission to the Father. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There's this peace that Jesus has in the midst of this horrible death. He's able to say, it is finished. He's able to say, I've done what I've, I'm dying knowing I've done what I was supposed to accomplish according to God's will in my life. And you can have that. We can have that in our lives. In Acts chapter six, Stephen, he's one of the first deacons of the church, one of the first leaders in the church called a deacon. And he is stoned by a crowd for preaching about Jesus. And, and he's, he's obviously in such immense pain. They're literally throwing like those big rocks we have out here in the flower bed. Rocks that size at the man's head over and over and over again. But the Bible says there's a moment before he dies where Stephen says, I can see heaven open and I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the glory of God. And he looks to Jesus and he says, Lord, Receive my spirit. And then he says, I love this. Stephen says, and Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Literally, as heavy rocks are being thrown at his head, in a moment where he could be bitter and he could be angry, or he could just cower and just curl up and, and just try to make it go away. He has peace because he sees Jesus. And he has so much peace that he's even able to release the people who are doing this to him from his own judgment. In the midst of pain and death, you can have peace. In the face of death, you can have peace. The Apostle Paul, in one of his last letters to his spiritual son, Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says this, As for me, My life has already been poured out like a drink offering. The time of my death is near. Watch this. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now the prize awaits for me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Paul's saying, I know where I'm going and I'm at peace. And I know I have done what I was sent here to do and what God called me to do. And so, yes, you can't have peace. I'm, I'm fairly young, not as young as I used to be, but maybe compared to some of y'all, I'm real young. I don't know. Maybe compared to some of y'all, I'm real old. (laughs) But for my age, I think it would be fair to say, and believe me, this is not bragging because I wish it wasn't true. I think it would be fair to say I've probably seen more death than most people my age. Um, Just family and and, and time in ministry, I've been by people's deathbeds and different things. So I've, I've seen a thing or two. And I was thinking about this question, can you have peace uh, when you're facing death as a Christian? 
And my mind went to two people, uh, Miss Onita and Steve. And I want to tell you about Miss Onita and Steve for a minute. Miss Onita was uh, a lady in my church growing up. I grew up in Cortland Baptist Church in Cortland, Virginia. It's where I was saved and where I was baptized. And um, when I was 13 or 14, Miss Onita asked my mom if she could borrow me on Wednesday nights because Miss Onita drove her car all over town to deliver because we had meals on Wednesday nights and she would go to the church and pick up meals and deliver them to shut-ins that couldn't come to church for a meal that Wednesday. And Miss Onita, she was in her mid-70s by then, early 70s, and um, had some uh, hip and leg issues and that kind of thing. And it was just hard for her to get out of the car, you know, several times, 20 times a night, and back to the, up the steps and then back to the car. And so she's looking for a kid to help her deliver these meals. And so for, like, from the age of 14 to 18, I think, I would get in the car with Miss Onita every Wednesday night before church, and we'd go and deliver meals to 15 or 20 shut-ins, elderly people, sick people. And this lady was nuts. I mean, she was, she was like, she would drive on the wrong side of the road. She would just do silly stuff. She would sing crazy songs. She was just funny. Um, she was in her 70s, didn't act like it. She acted like she was in her 20s or 30s. Just funny, just, just full of life. Um, always had a funny story to tell. We'd go, get a, we'd go deliver meals and go get a glass bottle of Coke on our way back to church because that was just the thing that we did. Every now and then, she, she would say she had these hip and walking problems, but then she'd like put her foot up on the dashboard while she was driving just to be funny. And I, It's just a funny lady. But I loved her, and she was so sweet to me and my family. She drove a BMW, really nice car, and for my, uh, one of my high school proms, she let me borrow it so I could have a cool car to take to prom. And so, like, just cool, you know, just a cool lady. And I went to my freshman year of college, and uh, she, uh, she called me, and she told me that she had an inoperable brain tumor. And all of a sudden, it made sense, because for the years that I had known her since I was a teenager... The woman had headaches every day. I thought she was addicted to BC powder. Remember that? Like she'd just throw that thing back and drink a glass or disgusting. But it made sense. She had actually, she had had this brain tumor for years and didn't know it. And so she had an inoperable brain tumor. And I remember um, there was nothing they could do. And so she was at peace though. And I remember going to see her. I came home from college and my dad and I, we went to the hospital to go see her. She was kind of in and out of everything. And I was hurting. It was very sad to me. And this lady with an inoperable brain tumor is laying on the bed, smiling in a perfect peace. And just a few days later, after I saw her that last time, she went to be with the Lord at perfect peace. So yeah, I think it's possible. I'll tell you about Steve. When I was in high school, I worked at Grayson and Emma's garden spot, and we uh, had a garden center, and we cooked fresh southern country food, and collard greens, and ham, salt-cured ham, and boiled peanuts, and the whole thing. You know, I know that's weird here, but in Virginia, that's a thing, and um, 
I loved that job. It was awesome. I loved being in the summers. We'd pick cantaloupe and watermelon out in the field and come and sell them in the winter. We'd cook food, and, and it was just awesome. I loved that job. Um, but there was a guy there. His name was Steve, and Steve was in a wheelchair, and he was the guy that would just take people's orders. And, you know, especially at Christmas and Thanksgiving, we take big food orders for people to take home. And, that kind of thing. and his job, and, and actually he didn't get paid. He just came. He didn't, it wasn't a job for him. It was a hobby. And he was there every day, and he'd take people's orders. And he was in a wheelchair. He had muscular dystrophy. And I don't know if you've ever known anyone with that, but basically your muscles lose all ability and strength over a long, drawn-out process. So he had had it for a long time by the time I met him. And he could, he could barely... Uh, like bend over his in his chair to the table to feed himself. He couldn't pick his hand up very high, and he so he. By the time I knew him, that's how he was living, and he could barely just write with one hand. And um, but the nicest guy and the funniest guy you'd ever meet. And um, again, I went off to college, and I heard that Steve was getting to the place where the way it works is these your your extremities fail first, and then the muscles. And your core eventually began to fail. And he was getting to the place where his heart, the muscle of his heart couldn't pump anymore. And that the muscle that makes you breathe wasn't able to work anymore. So he was facing death as well. And I loved Steve. Me and him just got to be buddies. I don't think he liked me at first. But we got, you know, I was kind of this annoying teenager. But um, I just loved him. And I thought he was, and he was just always smiling, always nice. I mean, think about it. A guy in a wheelchair who's got every reason in the world to be bitter and angry and never is. And always sees the less fortunate than him. And so he's, uh, he's, he's laying in the hospital bed. He can't pick up his head. He can't pick up his arms. He can barely talk. And I just wanted to come and see my friend. And I'm choking back tears now, and I was then too. I was in the room, and I just came to talk to him. His wife was there, and we were just sitting and talking. And I probably spent almost an hour there just talking to him, just keeping him company. And he's just the same guy he always had been, even though he could barely move. And it's time to leave. I'd worn out my welcome, I think. And I knew I was going back to school, and I knew I wouldn't see him again. And so I held his hand, and I told him, I said, I told him goodbye. And this guy just smiled, and he winked at me, and he said, see you later. And that was it. Perfect peace. You can have peace with God. When you know where you're going, you know who you belong to, you know what hope you have in eternity. See, Steve knew just a few days I'm not going to hurt anymore. In just a few days, I'm not going to be in this wheelchair anymore. Things are going to be okay. And I'll see you again. I love that. And so now, 15 years later, those two people stick out in my mind because they had peace. And so here's how I want to close today. You only get that kind of peace when you have a relationship with the Prince of Peace. I won't tell you the other stories I know, but I've been around other people who had no peace on their deathbed, and it's not the same. It doesn't feel the same, and it doesn't look the same. But you can have it, and the only way you can have it is through a relationship with the Prince of Peace, and his name is Jesus.
He is the one who has secured our eternity for us, and he is the one who has made sure that we can have hope for life after this life is over. Peace in life and in death come through Jesus. Here's the thing. Many people right now, they're living as citizens of heaven now, knowing they have heaven to look forward to and eternity and a new heaven and new earth to look forward to. So we have peace. But then I know other people, they're not citizens of that kingdom and they're living a living hell now and they have nothing but hell to look forward to. Our job is to take the peace that we have and snatch those people out of that living hell in the now so that they can have the hope of heaven for all eternity. Amen? So here's what we want to do. If you get those cards and maybe Justin, someone else can pass them out. There's pens on your seat. Pastor Katie, after you do that, if you'd come on up. There's pens on your seat and you're going to get a card. And you know a name of somebody who does not have that kind of peace. Every one of us do. Every one of us, we know a name of someone that doesn't have peace in this life or peace for the next life. They don't have the hope of heaven that we have as followers of Jesus. And it would be criminal to sit here and talk about heaven and talk about eternity and talk about restoration and resurrection and keep it to ourselves. It would be it'd be hateful. So here's what we're gonna do. I want you to take that pen that you've got, or if you need a pen, borrow one from somebody. There should be one in the seat in front of you. And I want you to write the name of that person that just came to your mind. I know that this person doesn't have the peace that they need. Might be somebody in the room, you need to write down your own name. I don't have that peace yet. But I want you to write it down. Who's that person that you say, you know what? My heart's desire for this friend, for this spouse, for this child, for this neighbor, for this parent, my heart's desire is for them to have peace now and peace in eternity. Write it down. Everybody's participating today. We're called to be ambassadors of peace. We're called to take the peace of Jesus with us wherever we go. That person that you just wrote down, they just came, became your responsibility. You can't make them choose Jesus, but you can make sure that they know they have an option.